0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Warlord Games official podcast, the podcast that digs into the wonderful tabletop games and expansions to those games that Warlord puts out for us to enjoy on the tabletop. Now, it is time for another exciting episode about my favorite game, Bolt Action. And today, we are actually going to be almost exploring the beginning to and run up into one of my favorite previous campaign-slash-theater books, Stalingrad. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Today, we are talking Case Blue with the author of that book. Now, for those who are not familiar what Case Blue is, it the real Cliff Notes version of this is that it is the post-operation uh Barbarossa. Obviously, that is where Germany invades the Soviet Union and hopes to knock it out in one solid punch um, so that they can go back to their conquest in other places. That clearly doesn't work. And so they they then, the following year in 1942, put together Case Blue. Um, and it's got a couple of objectives, and I'm sure our guest is going to correct me in a minute, but the rough two prongs to that are one, to capture Soviet oil fields because at that point the German military was overextended, they needed supplies, they needed oil in particular, and also the drive towards the city of Stalingrad, which had Stalin's name and Hitler was obsessed with. Helping us to unpack the history behind Case Blue and taking that and putting it on the tabletop with new army lists new theater selectors, and new missions, is our friend, the author of the previous Stalingrad book for Bolt Action, Alexander. Welcome back to the Warlord Games podcast. How you doing, man?
1: I'm doing great. Happy to be back on the
0: program. How are you? I'm wonderful, man. I love talking about this stuff. Now, I loved the Stalingrad book. It was a wonderful expansion to the Bolt Action game. It had some great history written into it that I really sunk my teeth into. As someone who plays Soviets and Germans and likes to play games on the Eastern front, I thought it was a wonderful expansion to the Bolt Action universe. I particularly enjoy, for example, the the Tank Factory list. I thought it was fluffy. It was a great addition to the game. And to have you as the author of that book coming back for another whack at the same rough time period in the same location is just really exciting. Now, I know previously you talked about how you enjoyed writing Stalingrad because it was almost like one of those apocalyptic battles that we have seen in history very few times. Were you excited to then come back as the author for Case Blue as as an opportunity to flesh that out and expand
1: it? Well, for me, uh, I felt like I still had some unfinished business with the Eastern Front, especially, um, you know, the Southern end of it. Um, You know, Stalingrad originally had a slightly bigger scope to it and was going to include parts of Case Blue. But when I was writing that, I realized there just, it wasn't all gonna fit. There was just too much in Stalingrad and the immediate surroundings. I was gonna, it was, I had two options, stretch things real thin, and do just like barely dip your toes in a lot of different things or do Stalingrad, you know, give it its proper due and leave out some other things. So, you know, I know I personally would have loved to include the Italians, Hungarians, Romanians more in Stalingrad, but that just wasn't going to be possible and do them the proper justice that they deserved. So the decision was made to focus on Stalingrad for the first book. And there was kind of a um, unsaid expectation that if it did well, if it, um people were happy with it, then maybe we could come back, revisit it, and and capture all the stuff that we kind of left on the cutting room floor. So for me, Case Blue is a bit of finishing what I started. Um, so it not only kind of details the lead up to Stalingrad, the actual fight for the city and the, the you know, the Sixth Army um, fight for it, but also it, it covers what's going on simultaneously with Stalingrad and other parts of the um, Southern uh, uh, Army Group South. So um, you know, just a, a brief overview of the kind of mini campaigns you can expect in case blue, we start things off in the Crimea. Right. And I really wanted to capture this because it, it gets real wacky in the Crimea. Um, there's some Soviet activity there that you don't see normally. Okay. They drop uh, their airborne troops. You know, Normally the Soviet airborne forces, they fought just as infantry for most of the war. Mm-hmm. Right. Really good infantry, but just on foot. You know, the Crimea is one of the only places where they actually did a combat drop behind enemy lines and fought as airborne troops. So, you know, you had to put that in. There's another, there's amphibious assaults by the Soviets. There's pulling a a Soviet light cruiser up to a dock to open fire at point blank range on German defenders. You have these massive, super heavy battleship turrets that they installed as uh, defensive land you know, landward defensive well sea and landward defensive turrets um, that the germans had to storm so there's all sorts of cool stuff in the crimea that i wanted to capture so it it, it kind of acts as a a little bit of a pre preview of what's to come for the rest of the book uh, it's a little bit of its own little mini ca- campaign but i i couldn't leave it out it was too cool so we start there we move on to case blue itself the the attack heading south we uh, head into the city of Rostov, which is this first kind of urban battle that is a little bit of a taste of what's to come for Stalingrad. Um, we get some, some NKVD, one of their uh, kind of specialized units, their their motorized division defends the city. You get the Brandenburgers involved and their kind of special uh, tactics and shenanigans. Mm-hmm. Uh, it uses a lot of cool stuff. So and once we get through Case Blue, we're heading down into the mountains, right, into the caucus. Um, so yeah, you can expect lots of mountaineers. You can expect fighting in uh, you know freezing mountain passes. Uh, but the the terrain is really more varied than I think people realize. You know, so you start off in basically the Ukraine. Okay, so you got steppe. You head south. Now you're in basically a desert uh, between you know you kind of Ukraine and the and the oil fields. There's essentially this arid flat area that just is kind of Deserted for the most part. Then you get into the hills, and then it becomes mountains, and then at the very end, after the Soviets' counterattack, which we cover it as well, you end up in in the Kuban region, which is swampy. So you can really, I mean, no matter what terrain you have uh, available to you, you're going to have an opportunity to put that on the board. So it's not all, uh, you know, Stalingrad. There was a lot of urban battle locations, right? Forests, swamps, rivers, buildings. Hills, mountains—you're you, going to have a chance to put it all in the field. So that was one thing I liked about writing this book: is the amount of variety, not just in the battlefields, but the armies involved. Stalingrad had less variety because it was more of a static location. This one is—it's—it's uh, it's just got a little bit of everything.
0: Just to tie to what you're saying, you mentioned it earlier, and I think it's important to underline because I'll admit it: as someone who you know was a casual uh, enjoyer of World War II history nonfiction and fiction, but who spends a lot of time trying to research lists for bolt action. When you say Stalingrad, I immediately think Germans, Soviets, enemy at the gate, so to speak. Mm-hmm. However, there were way more forces involved in Case Blue and in Stalingrad that, um, that were involved, particularly on the Axis side that we often don't think about, but probably should. And that is something that you reflect, as you mentioned earlier, in this new book, Case Blue. Can you talk about some of that variety uh, outside of the obvious major two protagonists?
1: Well, that's the cool thing about writing Army about Army Group South is because you know Army Group North, you get they have some Finnish participation, but it's just mostly Germans. Army Group Center, same thing, it's mostly Germans. Get to Army Group South, and it's it's just the kitchen sink and everything. Um, you have Italians, you have Hungarians, you have Romanians, you have Slovaks, which make their way as a new um, new playable nation in this book. Uh, you have Croatians, which are uh, still kind of operate as only in, on a unit level. They don't have their own army list yet, but you just have this huge mix of, of combatants. And um, in Stalingrad, we, we spent a little bit of time with the Romanians, but Case blue, we're kind of looking bigger picture and we get to spend time. The Romanians do make a pretty big appearance in this book as well, but the Italians and Hungarians get um, some time to, to shine um, as well. I think what's interesting is is the history of this campaign is often written by the Germans. And one of two things happens with their kind of uh, ally, the, what we would call the Axis miners. They either get ignored completely or mm-hmm. they get blamed for anything that went wrong, right? So uh, you don't hear about them until something went wrong, and then suddenly it's their fault. So mm-hmm. what I sought to do here is is to look into their sources and find out what were they up to while the Germans were fighting in Stalingrad or heading off into the mountains, and um, they were fighting some pretty vicious battles along the Don Bend for control of these um, bridgeheads. So the Soviets had basically little bridgeheads over the Don that they had fortified and you know the italian hungarian romanian commanders they weren't stupid they knew that this was an extremely dangerous situation to have basically russians on their side of the river they knew that their only chance of holding that line spread thin as they were was to use the river as a defensive you know basically a, a to separate them from the from the soviets um so there was some pretty bitter fighting for control of these bridge has to push the Russians out. And unfortunately for them, they weren't able to get rid of all of them. So, um, we do have some cool battles in that, um, in that stage of the war for the Italians, Romanians, Hungarians. And then once the Soviet counterattack happens in the winter time of 1942 to 43, um, we have the, what well, the Soviets termed, uh, operation, little Saturn, which is their envelopment of those armies, the Italians, Hungarians, Romanians, and their, um, kind of uh, epic adventure to return to friendly lines, to put it mildly, Um, and some pretty incredible feats of arms, especially from the Italian Alpini Corps, who marched hundreds of kilometers through freezing conditions behind enemy lines to break through and escape from um, this this, uh, kind of apocalyptic uh, event that has swept over everyone in the region, German, Hungarian, Romanian, no one else was able to survive this except for these handfuls of pockets of troops who were able to maintain the discipline to march out of encirclement so um you know these minor ideas get get their time to show what they could do how they could fight Um, they're not simply road bumps or um, kind of footnotes for the germans and soviets they are main players in this game um, and i wanted to make sure that they the book reflected that
0: Oh, that is amazing news. And I am definitely going to be coming back to talk to you about Italian rules in a couple of minutes. But let's talk about one of the things we love to talk about on this cast and other casts on this network are missions. Now, you have talked about such a wide span of battles and conflicts across um, this year plus that the book is covering. How many missions are we talking about here that players can play out on the tabletop and is it, are they all roughly the same size as far as point value or does it break down to a skirmish level and up to Epic battles? What, what are we expecting to see in this book?
1: So you can expect uh, 19 scenarios, which is pretty close to what the Stalingrad book had. I think the Stalingrad book had 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's going to be a, it's going to be a fat book kind of like Stalingrad was. Um, and the, variety it's it's all over the place so let's start on the low end um i have a battle called the lagoon which is towards the end of this campaign the germans have been reduced to this little tiny pocket in the kuban region and it's bracketed by these swamps and what the soviets and germans had to do is there was no way to build trenches in the swamps or any sort of fortifications so they would send out basically patrol little patrols in um like inflatable rafts and they would kind of zoom through the swamps, like alligator hunters, and look for the enemy. And sometimes patrols would run into each other and have these kind of uh, running battles between uh, groups of soldiers in inflatable rafts or on the little islands that were um, dotted throughout the swamp. So on the smallest level, you have basically a patrol versus patrol end. Mm-hmm. And then on the bigger end, there are some scenarios that are designed for multiple players. And when I say multiple, more than two. Um, so for instance, the battle at Rostov is best played with four players. Or two players who have a lot of time on their hands, because there are four different forces involved, yeah. um, and two two of the German forces or Axis forces are trying to link up with each other, and they're bracketed by two Soviet forces. So um, that could probably be, I would say, at least two thousand points aside. You could go even bigger, depending on how board, you know big your board is. So we have everything from massive tank battles down to uh, a couple squads in, in rafts, skirmishing over a swamp. So a lot of variety there. Um, And then, as I said earlier, a lot of variety in terms of types of missions. Um, You know, one thing that, that I think I tried to capture in this book is a, a sense of, of having the narrative shifting back and forth between who is, um, who is on the offensive and who's on the defensive, right? It's not just Germans attacking and Soviets defending or vice versa. You really have an opportunity for both sides to play kind of the defender or attacker or have meeting engagements um, because it can get boring playing defense over and over again or attack having mm-hmm. to be on the attack over and over again. So I look for opportunities for, you know, the Italians to be on the defensive and then on the defensive and vice versa. Um, so you're, you're, no matter which army you play, you're going to have at least a handful of scenarios that work for your army. Even like Hungarians have, I think, three or four that they can that they're allowed in. Romans have more than that, and of course the Germans and Soviets will have the lion's share because they they had the biggest uh, forces in the region. But um, every army, including the Slovaks, get a couple of chances to to play different roles. So variety is the name of the game in this book nice nice well i hear the
0: masses calling through the internet i hear the voices saying this is great but tell us more about what we're putting on the tabletop i hear particularly the italian players calling to me saying are there new national rules so let's talk a little bit about some of the forces that appear in this book rules wise now you've mentioned some of the minor powers let's start with was it the slovak force that has its own new national rules and army list in this book
1: uh yeah the slovaks are our new whole new army um they're basically the rump state of czechoslovakia the uh slovakia part of czechoslovakia um which became essentially a puppet of of germany and they sent uh two divisions to the eastern front one of which was a security division really didn't see much combat so that's not really what we focus on instead their mobile division did see combat with army group south um i did want to include them because why not more the more the merrier they seem interesting i had an expert give me a lot of good details on the slovaks um so they are a um they i mean they're a small force but they're they're a mobile division so they have a, a they have access to tanks they have access to armored cars infantry cavalry they're they're a fully fledged force and not only did i want to include the uh, specific division that fought in this region but i also gave them a generic selector as well so they can be taken outside of this book uh, right. there's a few units that are in the book that they can't actually take in the case campaign those are for players who will want to take the slow box outside of this kind of you know, 1942-1943 uh, Eastern Front region and play them, you know, for instance, uh, maybe a 1944-1945 kind of battle where they you know, they did uh, at one point uh, rise up against the Germans. So that that is something you can use from this book is take that Slovak army and play in other campaigns. Um, their rules are, they have their own faction rules. They're all unique. They are not a duplicate of any existing minor factions. Um, they kind of fight defensively. Um, They're not a, they're, they're a cautious army, Mm -hmm. but they're a solid army. They do, they do things well, but, but they're not a uh, gamble at all kind of force. So if you're the kind of guy who likes to be, um, or kind of player who likes to be a little cautious, a little bit slow and steady, maybe this is a good force for you. And, uh, you know, we reflected their, their, Abilities in terms of their equipment. Um, They have a lot of ex Czechoslovakian army equipment at their disposal, Mm -hmm. um, including their excellent tanks and light machine guns that are a little outdated by this time, but they know how to use them. So they are no force to trifle with. They can certainly hold their own on the battlefield. Um, And so I'm excited to see if anyone takes this and runs with it because um, I always love seeing niche, interesting forces on the battlefield. And I think the Slovaks are going to be one of those.
0: It, yeah, and it's great to hear that they're not just a reskinned German army because, you know, that is what sometimes when people have been trying to field minor powers on tabletops, you know, converting models and then being like, well, I'll count this as. Uh, but oftentimes it's just a reskinned German army. It sounds like these have their own personality and have their own character, and it really does allow you to play bolt action in a new way on the tabletop.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, aside from the Slovaks, I, I wanted to capture the the unique ways of fighting between of the Italians, the Hungarians, and the Romanians. Okay, so they do have existing rules in the Axis Minor book. Um, do those necessarily represent the forces that were sent to the Eastern Front during this exact time period? Well, they're more generic, right? They're meant for them for the entire, ar- for the entire war, especially the Italians who fought in multiple theaters. Those army rules... Are, they have to be generic enough to work in all theaters. So one thing I set out to do when I was writing this book is to represent the armies that were sent to the Eastern Front from these Axis miners. How did they fight specifically in this theater? And so I, I did a ton of research, um, especially the Italians. I was able to find a, a good amount of primary sources and uh, have really focused in on what made each of them unique. So you mentioned the Italians earlier. Let's talk a little bit about their um special faction rules mm-hmm. first one that they get it regards to their large unit sizes okay so the Italians are one of the only forces in world war two that stick with a binary platoon system so what that means is you know you normally think of a platoon as three squads plus a command unit of some kind uh for Italians, it's two squads and then the command unit and the squads are enormous right they could be up to 20 men wow so how do we represent that on the tabletop right because no one's going to take a squad of 20 men Uh, as the rules kind of exist, right, there are disadvantages to taking a unit of that size. You have less order dice. Mm -hmm. You're only going to be able to put out one pin no matter how much firepower that one unit puts on a target. Um, You know, you have less units to capture objectives. So there are certain downsides to taking those large units. So to kind of encourage Italian players to stick with these large units, what I've done is essentially made uh, Italian units that have a certain amount of men in them uh, have a chance to give an extra pin a d2 pins instead of just one nice. so if you think of essentially what would in a lot of other armies be like two squads kind of merged into one all pouring their firepower into a single target it does make sense that they could put put pin you down a little bit better than a five-man ten-man squad would right uh, especially mm-hmm. some of these squads can take two lmgs um, so really you're thinking of like two squads merge together so the italians can form these huge squads or new units that allow them to take these large squads and the special rules reflect those those kind of uh uh not a lot of small units but instead of a handful of larger units right and to encourage time players to kind of adopt that binary platoon structure um so you can totally ignore it if you want if you are a person who loves having lots of small units and not don't don't like going with huge you know couple of big units you can you it's completely optional you can just go with small units however uh if you want to give that kind of new style of play a try you might find yourself rewarded for it uh with the amount of pins you can put on your target with these big squats um aside from that one of the other things i wanted to really capture is the diversity in italian um specialists you have the alpini which are their mountaineers which are some of the best soldiers in the war i would I would go out on a limb to say they're tough as nails and um they have great morale they're obviously excellent mountaineers due to the fact that they're recruited from the mountainous region of of italy mm-hmm. uh, so the italian players get a uh, of course you have the Bersaglieri, you have the uh black shirts you have this variety of of infantry as we've seen from the all the sets warlords putting out to represent which is awesome that i can finally have a little bit of everything in my italian army um so i've been buying every, i think I bought all every box they put out so far because like, all right well i can't not have Versagulari. Well, i can't yeah. not have alpini i can't not have this so um my italian army is now uh completely out of hand but i wanted to make sure that these specialists got their chance to shine and, and have some unique abilities so italian players can decide essentially to choose of a, of a variety of different rules to choose from, kind of like the British can choose from a list of rules mm-hmm. The Chinese can as well. And they can buff their alpini um, and give them stubborn. They can decide to buff their black shirts and give them uh, fanatics, or they can buff their persigulary and give them fire and maneuver, the at- the uh, American rule that allows them to yeah. fire. So that is because the persigulary were famous for being m- mobile infantry. They yeah. are the fast... They're fast. I mean they're if you ever seen them march, they're marching at like a jog. Um, that's the how they train is they train to be fast infantry. And so I wanted to give them the ability to move. And I thought, I mean, what better way to, to uh have mobile infantry than have them be able to shoot sc- shoot and scoot with uh, with a plum right? They're excellent headwear, uh, Yeah. wind. So, you know, the Italians are going to have a lot of unique ways to play. I can expect, or I hope to see, you know, folks modeling their armies based on these different types. Like, hey, I'm I'm rolling in with nothing but alpini because I want that special rule, and all my guys are going to be uh, stubborn. Or, hey, I can't I can't pass up this uh, Versagulari special rule, so I'm rolling with the feather the feather haired or the feather helmeted men, um, or or whatever. So I see it as as time players having some variety in ways that they can play. You know, Previously, the meta for Italians was uh, to avoid any small units, to avoid uh, you know, some of the, the uh, uh, potential penalties. I feel like if players who use these rules might have more variety in how they build their army. And um, now, the way the rules are set for these special faction rules is they are allowed in the case blue selectors or with the agreement of your opponent or tournament organizer. So these are designed for the Eastern Front for the specific time frame. So if you're trying to port it over to like a North African Italian army, you got to get your permission from whoever you're playing against or, or the event coordinator, because that's not really what they're designed for. Okay. Right. Um, So I know there's some people that will try to take this and run with it. That's your prerogative. Just make sure your everyone else is going to be okay with it because that's not what they were kind of built for. Does that make sense? These
0: rules, these rules won't reflect my Fulgore army in the desert is what you're saying.
1: Right, yeah, that would be that would be a bit of a stretch. Maybe a modification would be in order. Um, but these were these, and I'll to give you another example. The Hungarian army rules are specifically designed to reflect the second army that Hungry, Hungary sent to the Eastern Front at this point. Um, that army was not well trained. It was their kind of reserve force, so to speak. Their best force was set along the Romanian border, where they were um, in. Conflict with. So they sent their inexperienced troops to the Eastern Front. Now, does that mean that their rules are bad? No. In fact, the Hungarians can upgrade inexperienced troops mid battle under certain circumstances. And that's oh, cool. That the Hungarians, while their forces were inexperienced when they arrived. They quickly kind of got up to snuff uh, and and learned on the job, so to speak. And they did have an excellent officer and NCO corps that was able to mold these inexperienced troops into a battle-hardened force. So, you know, my kind of whole philosophy is take take um, take what's unique about a force, and it doesn't always need to be necessarily what we would consider a positive. But you can make it a positive if you uh, or a bonus if you think about it carefully and think, okay, well. The Hungarians were inexperienced, but they learned quickly. How do I reflect that in the tabletop rules? That's what I've tried to do here is find, find what's unique about each force, try to capture that in a way that's interesting and fun for the player.
0: Now, we are talking a lot about minor powers. I do realize as much as you and I both love minor power forces, that there are those who definitely want some majors as well. Now, I'm assuming that outside of – now, I do know that you mentioned boats earlier, and we'll come back to those in a minute. But outside of the patrol boats, what can we expect for the majors, for the Germany players and for the Soviet players out there?
1: Uh, I think both Germany and and the Soviets get about six units each. Um, One unit that applies for both the Soviets and Germans are the Cossacks and i think they're going to be a popular unit for the eastern front fighting from this point forward actually the italians could take them as well um they are the same for whichever faction takes them they have they're allowed for either italy germany soviets they can be mounted which probably most of us are going to want to put them on horseback being cossacks um it mm-hmm. can fire from the saddle which is a rule that lets them basically fire their rifles as rifles from the saddle so Think of, if you're thinking hit and run forces, these are definitely the folks to take. Um, they have some, uh, they're also tough fighters, even dismounted. So these are tough hombres, but they are also uh, a bit wild. And so they, for instance, can't take snap two orders or get the morale bonus from officers because they do what they want and then the, what they want to do isn't always what the officer wants them to do. So they are a bit of a, uh, a wild card that you can play um and i can imagine people using them quite effectively but they can also perhaps not always do what you want them to do uh if they get once they get a couple pins on them so i think those are gonna be a fun popular unit um the soviets get a uh, they get some mountain troops soviet mountain troops are a little different than what we would consider normal mountain troops from italy from germany so soviet mountain troops were not actually trained as mountaineers and Really, they were just locals from the area that were. They would say, "Oh, you live in a mountainous area? Okay, you're a mountain division." They were given a few more mules and some ropes, but other than that, they didn't really have any specialist training. So they do have rules to reflect that they're different, um, but they're not. They're, they don't have the mountaineer special rules. So those can be an interesting unit for Soviets to take. They also get access to naval bombardments from the Black Sea Fleet, which was lurking around the. Um, periphery in this whole campaign, so they can call in some uh, artillery strikes there. Um, I think for the Germans, one of the most exciting units is probably gonna be the Viking SS unit. Um, these are Scandinavian volunteers from uh, that have joined the SS, the Waffen-SS. And the kind of core of this uh, unit was the Finnish uh, volunteers. And they pretty much operated like a Finnish unit in German service. Uh, so they actually do get access to the Finnish uh, national rule, hmm. Sisu, uh, which is also an excellent movie, kind of uh, grindhouse movie that's to come out on streaming if you ever get a chance and want to see is, it It like is, it um, is. So they actually get access to the Sisu rule. Um, they, don't act, they don't get access to all the German special rules if they take that. So you can kind of have an imported Finnish unit in your German army now. And they also can take fanatics as well. So you, that's something that I could see being very expensive, but very nasty on the tabletop. Yeah. And
0: for those who aren't familiar with Sisu, because not everyone plays fins, it is the rule where if a unit, an infantry unit drops to 50%, they go up a level in veterancy. So let's say I had eight Finnish regular riflemen. If you had killed four of them, then all of a sudden they go to veteran. So they get tougher, the more you hurt them. And if they are already veteran, they become what we in the, in the trade like to call super veterans, which is just the same as regular veterans, except there are, their leadership goes up to 11, making them the only army in the game that can have leadership 11. So having units of them and Germans. Now that's an interesting situation that I think I might be adding some of those to my German army. That's
1: cool. Well, and when you consider that they can also take fanatics, you can imagine some very dangerous, hard to, hard to, uh, hard to get rid of um, mm-hmm. horses that could tag, can uh, tag along with the Germans now. Um, you know, the, the, my goal was to make sure that everyone got a little bit of something. So as an, as a general rule, each, each army is, is getting at least five new units. Um, these are mostly infantry and cavalry units, not a lot of new vehicles, except the Slovaks get, of uh, course, vehicles, um, because most of that has been covered at this point. Uh, so I'm looking for what gaps in the rosters. I'm looking for units that were employed, employed in this section of the line. And because we're in this kind of ethnically diverse region, there are a lot of kind of, opportunities to add units. Um, I'll, I'll just name drop one more German unit. That's the Ost Legion, which are a group of um, non-Russian non-Russian ethnically and culturally um, folks that were in this kind of caucus region, many of which had kind of mixed loyalties towards the Soviet regime and signed up with the Germans. Now, these guys are cheap, but they are not exactly reliable and they can be a good way of fleshing out your force as a german player with um and well let me give you a little more detail they start off as inexperienced once they take a casualty they're not green instead they have conflicting loyalties which is a um which a rule i think the french unit has as well but hmm. um they can either downgrade to shirkers or they can upgrade to regular and stubborn because my research what i found is they formed dozens and dozens of these os legion uh Battalion, sorry, and uh, some of them fought extremely courageously, and others would dissolve basically on contact with the Soviets. So you kind of don't know what you're getting here with these guys. They could be great, or they could be, um, you know, almost useless. So if you're a gambling person, um, maybe that's. I could see, I could see an army of nothing but these guys, and you're just hoping that the dice gods are listening and. Yeah, you uh, end up with a bunch of fleeing troops or a super powered uh, f- stubborn force. So for those of you that are like to live on the edge, you have a, a new option.
0: I played a game yesterday. Uh, ironically, just uh, to, sel- to help set up for this uh, recording, I played a Germany versus Soviet Union game uh, on the Eastern Front yesterday. And uh, the Soviet opponent I was playing had a number of green units, all of whom, of course, upgraded over the course of the game. No one, of course, downgraded or stayed the same. (laughs) Everyone became regular. So uh, I think this will definitely be something that he is interested in, although it sounds like it uh, was for the Germans. So maybe I'll run it in my army and see what happens. I don't know if I have the luck.
1: Yeah, so there's a little bit for everyone in this in this book. I would like to bring up
0: the boats because up until now, one of the things that people love to talk about is that there is one boat in bolt action. The Broken Crater is a (laughs) Soviet boat in the Soviet book and people bring it up all the time. Oh, wouldn't it be great to put one of those on the table? The problem is there weren't really rules for how they moved around and it is one patrol boat that one nation gets and so you can't really... Other than if it's parked in the middle of a board where there's a, a, a dock or a river, there's no real way to get one onto the tabletop Now, what you're providing in this book are actually scenarios and units that allow you to actually play proper water units in bolt action outside of landing craft
1: so there there are a couple um, there are a couple scenarios where naval forces are available and that can come into play. Now, um, there's really no scenario where there's a, for instance, German versus Soviet naval fight. For the most part, the Soviets have control of the Black Sea and they are uh, really only contested from the air. But there are a couple Soviet amphibious landings. So, for instance, early in the book, the Soviets land at a town in the Crimea. And Soviet players, for this scenario only, can bring a light cruiser onto the table. Now whether or not anyone ever tries to model this i suppose there's someone out there crazy enough to try to model a soviet light cruiser at 156 scale you're welcome to to use a token or some other marker Um, but the ship literally pulls up to the dock disgorges thousands of naval infantry onto the docks and then fires its naval guns into the town full of German defenders. So in this scenario, I I decided, well, I can't just leave this cool ship out. So you are able to essentially take control of this ship and use it to bombard the town from point blank range. The Germans are responding with their emplaced artillery to try to blast the ship out of the water or at least kind of see it off. Um, I think the ship holds like 16 times in this kind of point blank duel. Um, So you have the opportunity to control the ship. It has its own special rules for this scenario. And then a few of the other amphibious scenarios, you can take control of both the landing equipment and the Soviet kind of uh, patrol boats that are defending them and fight against the land-based and air-based forces of the Axis. I just thought it was cool to to kind of incorporate these mechanics in there. It's a little gimmicky, right? This isn't something I would expect to see scenario in and scenario out. These are kind of specific built for these scenarios but it gives you an idea of what can be done with this rule set if you want to build your own there's also a uh, speaking of kind of unusual vehicles there's also a a cool armored train scenario in this book where the soviets have to basically break through uh, with an armored train while the germans are trying to stop them and so if you're one of those people that has an armored train this is a chance to pull it out and try to um go full speed ahead and the germans can not only try to destroy the train itself but destroy parts of the track um to prevent the soviets from escaping which then they have to kind of let off their their onboard troops to try to repair the track while under fire so it's a very uh, exciting scenario that that again provides some variety right i think we've all played a million kind of meeting engagements over a little farm or something so we're looking for what what's new. What haven't you tried before? Provide something exciting that is fresh. And every scenario, I tried to find something that was unique to throw in there to give you something uh, new and interesting to, you know, for your enjoyment and for your engagement.
0: One of the really exciting things as a bolt action player for me is to take historically themed, interesting lists that are different. Then your standard reinforced platoon. Now, you included quite a few really interesting selectors. I mentioned one earlier in the Stalingrad book uh, in the form of the tank factory where the Germans were rolling right up onto the factories that were making uh, T-34s. And they were literally rolling off the line unpainted into conflicts, sometimes with factory workers crewing them to fight against the Germans. That is such an iconic moment in history and is such a great list in bolt action. Do we see any more theater selectors in this book that dig in and let you take sort of wild and interesting forces on the tabletop that is different from your standard reinforced platoon?
1: Well, there's definitely a few that, that come to mind when you, when you mention that um, there's an airborne Soviet platoon um, that is is pretty much, you know, all airborne all the time. So you can build, you, if you, and I love those airborne Soviet models. So I have right? almost enough that's to make good. a platoon out of already. So if that's something that's interesting to you, then um, you can build that. And they get their own special kind of uh, selector rule where they can replace their, their free rifle squad with a free upgrade for all their squads to tough fighters and anti-tank grenades. So you have a uh, kind of elite uh, core of infantry there. And so if you're but i'm i'm kind of more of an infantry than a, a tank player so i like mm-hmm. to take infantry every forces so if you're one of those that could be fun um there's a um there's a nkvd um, selector that is nkvd heavy unsurprisingly um, they can um, upgrade every model uh, to fanatics or they can downgrade the rest of their forces to shirkers so you can have all fanatics, or you can have a mix of fanatics and shirkers. Um, and that's to reflect these these kind of bifurcated force that, that fought at the certain points where the NKVD were standing firm and everyone else was kind of running away. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are, um, for the Germans, there are, are a few kind of interesting um, forces. Let me try and find one here. I'm looking at the book as we talk. Um, the Germans have a few interesting scenarios where they're on the defense and because they're on the defense, they don't necessarily get to pick what they would want to be at that um, battle. You know, so typically if Germany's on the offensive, they're putting together a camp group of some tanks, some motorized infantry, some this, that, and they kind of build the same kind of force every time. But when they're Mm -hmm. on the defensive, they don't have the time to pick what they want. It's just like whatever's there. Right. So in a few scenarios, they can have quite a bit of artillery, For instance, that scenario I talked about earlier where the light cruiser pulls up to the dock. Well, the Germans that are defending that, they're mostly pioneers that are there setting up defenses in the city at the time. They're not necessarily supposed to be guarding this, they're just working in the city at the moment. And then a bunch of artillery. So that selector is basically pioneers, pioneers, however you want to pronounce it, and artillery. So you can have quite a bit of artillery and quite a bit of pioneers. there's other scenarios where they're defending uh, like a town after the Soviets have lost their counterattack, and they have some in-placed 88s and then a bunch of stragglers, a kind of random uh, assortment of whoever they could scrounge up, alarm units, uh, their um, their police units, whatever whatever was available. So they have a lot of kind of scrappy um, forces at their disposal that are just a a mixed bag of anything that was in the area. So you can have some real variety there. Um, the minor nations have less selectors, but um, they they have a good variety as well. Um, there's a Hungarian um, armored platoon. There's the um, Italian Alpini Corps, who uh, are basically we, that captures them as they're fighting out of encirclement. And of course, I think the one of the units that's gotten a lot of um, press, so to speak, is the um, Italian cavalry. Yes. Voya Cavalleria. Cav- as oh, my italian's horrible um that is a that is a cavalry selector so you can take quite a few uh cavalry squads you can take quite a few um machine gun teams and you can take quite a bit of light artillery uh, so that's really what that platoon is made of cavalry light artillery machine guns um the uh, these italian cavalry are going to be pretty dangerous on the on the battlefield and that's to reflect this kind of alon that this really historied unit brought to the battlefield um you know they kind of astonished anyone that ran into them and were acting as really the um mobile reserve of the italian force until mm-hmm. everything kind of fell apart you know, whenever there was a problem send the cavalry in to kind of restore the situation they didn't always fight on horseback they would also dismount this book does have quite a bit of cavalry in it compared to most other campaign books i do want to address kind of the difference roles that some of these cavalry played so the italians in this book are more of shock cavalry, kind of you think in the same vein as the the polish lancers maybe they're charging in headstrong get into close combat mess people up in close combat now the hungarians and romans do get new cavalry units and they do get new cavalry rules but their rules and uh and units are designed more to act as what we'd call mounted infantry or maybe dragoons, to use a kind of outdated term. They have boosted firepower. They now have access to some machine guns. They have access to light machine guns. They are larger for the most part. And their special rules do reflect their kind of new roles. So one thing that I think is, let's talk about the Romanian cavalry for a second. One thing that they're good about at is kind of outflanking the enemy. So this is reflected in the Romanian rules. Uh, Romanian Mountaineers and Romanian Cavalry can now outflank one to- turn sooner than uh, other armies. So the knock-on effect of that is they can outflank on turn two, I believe. I'll have to check the rules, rather than three, which means that the place that they can come in is also advanced by one turn. So they can really show up in on your opponent's side of the board much sooner than a unit outflanking from another army. So... You can basically have these guys in reserve, bring them in when you need them, and they can really uh, kind of appear in your uh, opponent's rear section, and then maybe destroy some artillery pieces, uh, mess up anything that's in the back line that you know doesn't want to get uh, that your opponent really wouldn't want their your, a bunch of cavalrymen rolling up on, and they're designed to really fight as mounted infantry, get off the horse, and then they have full a firepower of a full infantry squad at their disposal. So um, while they do not have the ability, the still they do not have the ability to charge into close combat, that's really to reflect their kind of changed role. So I think a kind of managing of expectations is in order for Romanian and uh, Hungarian players, but also to kind of rethink how you use cavalry and not to kind of see them as this you know, charging in rather than using their mobility to get a squad of infantry where your opponent really doesn't want a squad of infantry to be and then just briefly to touch on the hungarians the hungarians do get new cavalry they also get a new cavalry rule which basically gives their cavalry uh not just recce in order to get out of the line of fire they can actually advance on the opponent when fired upon as well they can go 360 so there's no longer the restriction that hungarian cavalry need to retreat away from the enemy or behind cover they can Mm -hmm. now use any chance that they're shot at to get full closer or to head over here or there or wherever you want them. Um, so the Hungarian force uh, is really all about mobility, both with their tanks and with their cavalry. And um, you know, I did a lot of place testing. I play Hungarians with the it's really a lot of fun to be able to just. Uh, just kind of push in on your opponent when they fire at you and that the terror on their face knowing that next turn you're basically right up in their face when they didn't want you to be Mm uh can be uh, a really fun way to play it it gets to the point where they don't even want to start shooting at your cavalry or tanks because they don't know where you're going to go with it and that makes them nervous so um hungarians are really aggressive in this way um so that can that's a lot of fun to play that way and you you just got to think the cavalry as a really aggressive fast-moving squad of infantry Uh, rather than a shock melee force. And then you can have a lot of fun with it.
0: Yeah, that sounds awesome. I'm loving the character and clearly the research and love you have for this time period and the research that you've done that's incorporated into these units to give them the flavor, to give them a new lease of life on the tabletop uh, as far as bolt action is concerned. This is awesome. I cannot wait to get my grubby paws on Case Blue. As someone who owns many Soviet and German armies, and uh, as I said, Italians and a few others, I'm just hearing so many things that I'm going to be doing with this book once I get my grubby paws on it. Now, if you are hearing this, the book is up for pre-order on Warlord Games' website, or it has just come out, depending on when this goes to air. Uh, Alexander, thank you so much for joining us today. I am beyond excited for Case Blue. And it is it's going to be a wonderful day for many players when this uh, when this book hits the tabletop, so to speak. Thank you for your time. And thank you for taking another bite at the apple, because this just, as you said before, expands all the hard work and all of the research you did uh, as part of the Stalingrad book uh, to give us a, a more holistic look at that period of time and that conflict.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I I really hope that people do enjoy this book. I put a a lot of my own kind of hopes and dreams into it as a Hungarian, Italian, German, and Soviet player. And so my philosophy was, what would I want to be able to do on the tabletop? And hopefully that comes across in the book. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what kind of armies people put together with these rules and Slovaks, Italians, Hungarians, Romanians, everything. Um, So I'm very much listening, hoping to... um, see how these are used on the tabletop and see what kind of armies people put together. But, uh, it's been a pleasure having, uh, talking to you again and, um, hopefully we can connect some other time and maybe the, maybe the, the trilogy will be complete one day. I don't know what that would look like, but, uh, there's always more on the Eastern front, isn't there? It's just, Oh, there's an endless source of material. So maybe there's something else that needs to be mined at some point, but anyway, uh, I'll bid you a good night and thank you so much for having me on. Ladies and
0: gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. This is amazing. I hope there is a third recording soon uh, and something to record about. Uh, Alex, again, keep up the good work. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to the Warlord Games Podcast. Good night.